welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. And now your host, Sonia Esther Sultani. Welcome to this new episode of the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. I'm your host, Sonia Esther Sultani, Editor-in-Chief of Rappaport. At Rappaport, we cover the estate jewelry market and auctions on a regular basis. There are some pieces that always attract a lot of attention. The creations of David Webb, the iconic American juror. In this podcast, we're not going to discuss prices, only art. My guest is Ruth Pelcherson, a jewelry historian and editor who wrote Elizabeth Taylor, My Love Affair with Jewelry. Her latest book is The Art of David Webb, in which she explores the connection between the jewelry and the artistic influences that nourished Webb's creative process. This is a deep dive into David Webb's story, and I hope you'll enjoy as much as I did. Hi, Ruth. So nice to have you on this podcast today. How are you? Very well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's such a pleasure. As I said a bit earlier, the book is magnificent. It's such a beautiful book. But before we get into the book, I would like you to tell us a bit more about David Webb. I know he's such an icon. And just to ask, who is he, actually? Who is David Webb? And how did he become such a famous designer? David Webb's story actually starts modestly. He grew up in the American South in the little town of Asheville, North Carolina. And really, his only exposure to jewelry was working for an uncle. And he worked in his uncle's shop. He worked on what we call the bench. And he got a little bit of experience. And there is a funny aside where he used to make these little copper ashtrays. And the insignia on the bottom was a spider web because his last name is Webb. But in any case, after he finished high school, he served a brief stint in the army and he decided to try his hand in Manhattan. And a great American writer once said, you shouldn't come to New York unless you're willing to be lucky. And he was willing to be lucky. So here he comes at 17. It's just towards the end of the war. And the city is starting to get, life is coming back. People are shopping again. Fashion is flourishing. People are having children. Everything is coming back to life after the war. And he finds work in the jewelry district, which for us is around 47th Street, what we think of um, as the Diamond District. And he starts working there and he gets to meet people. I mean, literally, he comes here without knowing anyone. And by 1948, At the age of 21, he opens a shop, and that is the founding of David Webb. And it was modest. It was a little walk up. You had to tromp up three flights of steps, but he began. And remarkably, by 1950, a pair of his earrings is shown on the cover of Vogue. So when you think about that, you think about the trajectory of a young man who had never seen art in his life, had never been to a metropolis, now has a pair of jewelry on the cover of Vogue magazine. It is just remarkable. And I think that that kind of was the impetus. That was the acknowledgement that he was onto something. And he became what I like to say, he was the right man at the right place at the right time. Everything is changing after the war. And, you know, we have Christian Dior's The New Look of 1947. Fabric is being used on garments instead of for parachutes and so forth. And life is just getting swish again. 
early David Webb in the 1950s starts to more or less follow in the footsteps of his betters. So he starts making a lot of white jewelry, diamonds set in platinum, some white gold, mostly platinum. And uh, But he doesn't get near yellow gold at that point. He's really just following what the big houses are doing, the Van Cleves, the Cartiers. And everything is white gold and it's volutes and it's very pretty. It's very pretty jewelry. So he hasn't yet found his voice. And Ruth, when is the turning moment? When is the shift where he becomes David Webb that we know today? And, you know, the style that we're familiar with, the opulence, the volumes, obviously the yellow gold as well being very present. When does that happen and how does that happen? David Webb starts to introduce gold into his jewelry really by the end of the 50s. He makes bracelet watches that have inlays of turquoise, let's say. It's not great turquoise even, and uh, turquoise with gold, but he slowly starts to move it in. But what really happens, what really, really kickstarts the use of yellow gold in David Webb's jewelry is the fact that he starts going to museums. He decides that as a man who has never really seen art in his life, in his growing up years, he embarks on a self-education. So he takes himself to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He goes to the Museum of Modern Art. He walks the streets of New York and sees the Guggenheim going up in 1959. He starts to go to art galleries. He goes to what's known in New York as Fourth Avenue, which were the old bookshops and antique stores. And he starts buying pieces of old jade and coral. So as he goes to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, he starts seeing ancient gold jewelry. He starts seeing Greek and Roman, Scythian jewelry, Renaissance jewelry with those big Baroque pearls, those crazy shaped pearls, and he starts to get ideas. And one idea he has is about gold. He is so enamored of the patina of the gold that he sees in this ancient gold in this ancient gold jewelry, that he starts to tinker with his formulas for gold. What percentage of copper does he add? How does he get the patina of this ancient gold? The second way that he starts to approach gold is he starts to mess with it. He hammers it. He chases it. He texturizes it in some fashion or another. And then that old expression, flattery is the imitation is the greatest form of flattery. He starts to copy what he sees. So he takes scrolls that he finds in ancient Babylonian forms, and he makes cuffs like that. And he starts to take, oh my gosh, score jewelry that he sees in Mayan architecture. And he builds up a ring that has great volume, but it looks like the step pyramids. And so all of the ancient works that he sees starts to influence his designs and his heavy reliance on gold. It's a game changer. It's such a game changer that suddenly there's this group of jewelers around Fifth Avenue that are getting everyone's attention. And they're Verdura, Schlumberger, and David Webb. And they're each looking at one another because, of course, why wouldn't they? I mean, they're all two blocks from each other. They reference each other. And at one point, frankly, even in 1990, they're given a group show together down in Texas. And that popularity really is sort of a result of being the right man at the right place at the right time. What helps that popularity in large part really is the fashion press because they love his jewelry. It's so big, 
It's so bold. It's so colorful that it pops on the page. So when they're showing a garment and they put these enormous earrings on a young woman, on the model, it shows up. It doesn't disappear. When they have her arm like this, you know, and she's showing off something, you see that bracelet. So he becomes a darling of the fashion press. Well, it's sort of a, it goes in a circle because they show his jewelry. People want to buy his jewelry. He becomes more popular. He gets shown in the press more often. And so his star rises and he starts dressing the very same clients that are already being attired by Schlumberger and Verdura and Cartier and Van Cleef and Tiffany, of course, the other great, great American house. And David Webb starts to dress Jackie Kennedy. He starts to dress Elizabeth Taylor. He starts to dress Doris Duke. Jackie Kennedy, for example, when the Kennedys were in the White House, she taps him to create the official gifts of state for the White House. Why is that significant? He was 37. He was a guy who never, you know, who just squeaked by high school. She is this elegant woman. She could have had anyone in America design these official gifts of state. She taps David Webb and she says, I want an American jeweler who uses American gemstones to make these pieces. I want every gemstone in these objects to be mined in America. Well, that's just mother's milk to David Webb because his inspiration is so American. What does that mean? His inspiration is pretty much everything and everywhere. That is almost a definition of why he is the quintessential American jeweler. So it's all these influences. It's this use of hard stone. He starts using jade a year before Nixon goes to China, which means that the fashion press started showing jade jewelry just at the time that jade got hot. But who knew David Webb was there a year before? So he was anticipating things. He, he was the man around town. I really like, Ruth, how you um, outline this journey as well, this discovery of art and culture and this whole world. And it's also this world vision that's shown in his pieces. And I think that's the beauty of your book, that you put together this dialogue between the jewelry and the inspiration. So can you tell us a bit more about the genesis of the book and how you decided to have these two facets of the work of David Webb together? For much of my professional life, I've been an editor of art books. I was doing books on fashion and film and fine art and architecture. And early on in my career, I was asked to edit a book called The Personal Collection of Queen Elizabeth II. And it was a challenging experience. I was 28 years old or so. <laughs> it was quite a long time ago. But I realized that for every book on jewelry, and every time you show a piece of jewelry, there are stories. And I love the stories. I grew up listening to my grandmother talk about the stories about pieces of jewelry. So by the time I got to David Webb, which was many years later, I really expanded my own thinking about what is art. And then around 2000, 2001, I left the house and I was approached by Elizabeth Taylor to do a book with her on her jewelry. That was quite a surprise and an experience as well. But one of the ways that I could wrap my head around working with such a grand star was to make her jewelry book a book of stories. Because I think every woman who has a piece of jewelry knows that there's a story behind that piece of jewelry. There's a reason she has that pair of earrings 
or that ring. And so no matter whether you're Elizabeth Taylor or little Ruth Peltison, there's a story. And that is how we connect. I think all women everywhere connect. We have these stories that connect us. And when I was thinking about another David Webb book, we did the history book in 2013. I was thinking about a new book. The company was having their 75th anniversary. I thought about the fact that I had remembered seeing in the archives an article that he wrote, the only article he ever wrote in 1963 called Why Not Hang Gems? And he basically makes the argument that jewelry should be considered art and should be in museums. And I thought, oh my God, that makes perfect sense to me. I can look at contemporary glass and say it should be in a museum, and indeed it is. So I made a proposal to the company, and it was actually called The Art of David Webb. And I started showing images of his jewelry next to things that I knew had inspired him, had influenced him exhibitions he might have seen, just as importantly, all the way up to the present. Because the great sign of any jewelry house is, of course, having a distinctive voice. And that voice has been present since the earliest days of David Webb up to now. So what we did is we ended up making this very, very large book called The Art of David Webb, and in it, we really were trying to show the jewelry alongside other pieces of art. And it was fun, frankly. I mean, it was, it was hard, but it was fun. I mean, here's an example of The Great Wave by Hokusai. And then these earrings, which today the co-owner and creative director said he based on looking at this. Well, that's what he based those earrings on, but... Let's go to this. Here's a Scythian pommel that David Webb attended the exhibition in 1959. And guess what? He makes this dragon brooch not long thereafter. So we start to see these connections. He sees a Buckminster Fuller exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art. And within a year or so, we see sketches in the archives of a geodesic dome ring. It's remarkable. We see these connections. I'm, oh my gosh, this is fun for jewelry nuts, which I think we all are. Here's the necklace, but look at his, look at what he was looking at. He's looking at Fouquet and Sandoz and Dunon, and he's taking inspiration straight from the Art Deco, straight from the Art Deco. He's looking at Suzanne Belperon, and he's doing scored rock crystal cuffs, and he inlays them with diamonds. Maybe she used faceted sapphires, let's say. He uses diamonds. But you see these connections. And so what I like to think is that these are voices that are connecting. In the world of fashion, there are so many fun revelations Oh, this is great. This is a Dubuffet and the Dubuffet brooch. And this is a case where the owner of Pace Gallery, Arnie Glimsher, goes to David Webb and he says, I want to make a surprise piece of jewelry for my wife's 40th birthday. And we're friends with Dubuffet. We represent Dubuffet. And here's from our new catalog. And would you consider something. He said, absolutely. So Dubuffet does a rendering. David Webb looks at it and he said, everything's great, but if you don't mind, instead of diamonds, instead of white enamel, I'd like to use diamonds. I think it pops a little bit more. Dubuffet says, yes. Is Millie Glimpshire related to me? It was kind of funny for the man who liked to use inexpensive materials. 
Dubuffet. Now he's being represented by diamonds. So we have these things that start to really speak to us in David Webb. And I just couldn't help myself. I just thought it was so fun to start to make these comparisons. And speaking of the Guggenheim, here's the Guggenheim. And here's the banded gold cuff. It's one of my favorites, I have to say. The simplicity of it, the volume, the just you look at the two of them together and it's so striking and it's just, you know, it's two icons together. So I have to say, when I was going through the book, I thought, wow, I love this ring. Yeah. And then it's fantastic. And here's another uh, jewelry favorite one. So this photograph by Man Ray, and here's the feta, here's the, what they call the friendship bracelet. Well, anyone who knows these conjoined hands are the feta symbols. But in Man Ray's photograph, she's got these little, this little tiny conjoined hands down there at the bottom. Well, guess what? Those were made by Schlumberger for Scaparelli. So how about that for sort of, oh, I don't know, encoded jewelry, I suppose. Um, but if you're me, you find that thrilling. And I really do find it thrilling. So we never stopped looking. We just kept, ah, oh, this is fun. Here's Dior and here's the earrings. So we tried to, I suppose in a way what we wanted to do, what I wanted to do was absolutely show David Webb's jewelry as art, but also open up a dialogue about jewelry as art to really say it is as deserving as anything else we see in museums. And that is very, very important. It's very meaningful to me. It's very meaningful to Mark Emanuel, the creative director and co-owner. Mark's from a family of artists. So in terms of selecting pieces for the book, we're, we're like two siblings together. We fight quite a bit, but we fight with a smile. He basically bribed me, bringing me uh, smoked salmon sandwiches every Saturday morning. And I gained a lot of weight meeting him every Saturday. And we would discuss what pieces of jewelry to put in the book. And we also discussed constantly the art. Um, Mark and I have for years gone to the Met together. Many a Sunday we'll go to the Met or an art fair, and he'll squat down and he'll look at a Rodin and he'll say, now, Ruth, look at the seam work. This is where they join the cast. And he looks at art the way he looks at jewelry being made in the workshop, which brings me to the other point. If you look at the jewelry made in the workshop, you realize why it's art. You look at these men and women and they work on a piece of jewelry from start to finish. It does not change hands. It's that person's piece. And that dedication, that artistry, what the French would call that savoir-faire, is evident throughout the making of that piece of jewelry. So whilst I think that the argument that jewelry is art can be made for many, many houses, many houses. In this case, I was looking at the vernacular of David Webb and how it addressed the broader world of art. And I think the book shows it very, very beautifully. And for people who are listening to the podcast, who are not watching the video, we'll show all the pages and the correspondence that highlighted Ruth in this podcast. So they have an idea of this beautiful dialogue between art and the work of David Webb and how they really uh, speak to each other. And I think it's so interesting because, you know, when you see a Picasso, you see Goya and you see Velázquez, 
You know, you right. always, it's like, there's nothing created in a vacuum and it's respect to an homage to what was before. It's not imitation, as you said, you know, it's like something really taking the tradition and creating your own voice and your own signature. And I think that's what David Webb did so successfully. And that's why he's such an iconic designer for so many people. And as you said, the house is still producing beautiful pieces. So it's almost an ongoing, ongoing story. Ruth, I would like to thank you so much for your passion and for having produced such a beautiful book. It's the holiday season now. So if you're a jewelry lover, you know what to put on your wish list. It's The Art of David Webb. It's published by Rizzoli. They did a beautiful job. And I must do a shout out to Takaki Matsumoto, our designer who designed the first book. And also Takaki and I did the Elizabeth Taylor book together. He's a gorgeous designer, so I do want to make a special thanks to him and to Elon Rubin, our photographer. So we were the same team from the first book as well. And I would like to ask you to wrap up, actually. You mentioned Elizabeth Taylor, and I think Elizabeth Taylor is wearing David Webb jewelry on the cover of the book that you were. What is the story of this David Webb jewelry that she's wearing on that cover? Well, it you know, life is funny. Elizabeth used to say that jewelry pieces find one another, and... When we did that book back in 2002, Takaki actually had presented that idea as the cover. And I remember being quite surprised because most publishers, particularly of art books, want a four-color jacket. And I thought, oh my God, you know, Simon & Schuster's never going to go for this. And our publisher, and they looked at it and they did. They loved it. It wasn't, I didn't think about the fact that she's, it's David Webb Pearls. Until years later, I'm working on the history book, and I think, oh, my God, that's right. Elizabeth's, you know, draping these David Webb pearls across her eyes like a mask. Well, P.S., it was this fantastic double-strand pearl necklace with this double diamond lion clasp that she then commissioned as a bracelet as well. And I'll never forget the day when I was going through company records at David Webb, and I come across the necklace that Elizabeth had. And it says, purchase Mrs. R. Burton, which, I mean, you just can't make that up, finding that. But Elizabeth, um, that was a still from a film she did in 1976 called Ash Wednesday. And she's wearing her David Webb pearl necklace, the bracelet, and she's wearing a very beautiful VCA ruby and diamond ring. And so basically, Elizabeth always wore her own jewelry in her movies. And if she didn't own it when the movie began, she tended to own it by the time the movie ended. But it was really, for me, sort of a personal connecting of the dots. And it was just accidental harmony. That's, that's the best way I can put it. Thanks. I love that story. And thank you so much, Ruth, for loving stories and jewelry so much for all of us to enjoy. I think people will find the book absolutely fascinating. It's a joy to go through, but it's also a pleasure to read. The narrative is superb. So I would encourage anyone who loves jewelry to buy a copy for themselves and also to gift it to someone who loves jewelry because oh, they will thank you. <laughs> And not just to have it as a beautiful coffee table, but to really read it because you learn so much and it's really a fascinating read. So thank you so much, Ruth, for being our guest on this podcast. It's a real privilege. Thank you very, very much. 
Thank you for listening to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast by Rappaport Jewelry Pro. This episode was hosted by Sonia Esther-Sultani and produced and edited by Vanina Pikolk. You can find all our episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and read more about diamonds, colored gemstones, high jewelry designers, estate jewelry, and the latest jewelry trends on rappaport.com slash jewelry connoisseur. Please subscribe to get all our new episodes, and if you liked this one, leave us a review.